Welcome to Life Centered, a podcast about how looking to the natural world is impacting technology, society, and how we live our lives. I'm Tim McGee, and in this episode, Amelia Tracy and I had a chance to talk with Marcus and Catherine Otmers. We first learned of the Otmers from the book Water in Plain Sight by Judith Schwartz, and reached out to learn more about how they have learned from nature to create a thriving life in the desert. Together, they run Otmers and Otmers, a mom-and-pop business centered around local economy and local food, providing solutions-based education services. We dive into their approach and how they learn from the land, connect with people, and create positive impact as a keystone species in the world. Enjoy. There's two things that you really can't live without in the desert, and that's shade and water. And so the the structure that he designed and, and installed, that he built, is a 50 by 50 rain barn, and it's a shed roof design in that it's 17 feet at one edge of the roof and 12 foot tall at the, at the opposite side of the roof. So it's a, it's a shed roof design. It's high up in the air. It's built out of metal. It's a metal roof. And it immediately gave us a large shaded area, and it immediately collected uh, rainwater for our water use. And so this is a, this is a development on the moon, if you think of it that way, because we're out uh, with very sparse resources in the desert. I hate to do any advertising, but but we're five hours from Walmart. (laughs) Fairly remote. Fairly remote. We we spec the building with an oversized gutter on it because when we do get rain, it can be a fairly torrential event and it comes fairly fast. And we, we installed the, the, the roof with the high side facing the, the rising sun. That way it would throw some shade on the low end of the building. And so we natu- get this natural inversion of temperature that transpires. And we get that morning dew uh, captured in the gutter, which is a covered gutter. And it goes into the rain barrels, which we put on the north side of the building to keep in the shade. And the rain barrels are large uh, polyethylene cisterns. You're probably familiar with seeing those. Uh, We can use those down here. We don't have any freezing. uh, You know, it's not like it's going to freeze solid or anything. So there are 3,500 gallon and 1,500 gallon black polyethylene tanks that run along uh, the north side of the building to keep them cooled and, and to also provide a, a little more uh, structure with their shade. It still is amazing to me how how you're you're learning the sort of genius of place. And where did you pick up the sort of insights around how to place the barn? I, I know permaculture gets into siting a little bit, but um, could you describe that process and sort of what insights drove you to create that rain barn? Um, you can laugh. Four months prior, we had laid out uh, during the the equinox mm-hmm. um, the the rising and setting sun, and so I I had a giant sun calculator already laid out on the property. Uh, just due to observation, if you have a new piece of property, you're not living there. It's good to to mark the lowest and highest setting places on the on the land 
and uh, it's highway frontage, so I, I didn't want to be right on the highway. I, I wanted to be a couple hundred yards back, so I had some trees to block the noise and, you know, have a little privacy because we're, uh, we're blessed with, uh, bush, we call bushes trees in West Texas. You know, a lot of the mesquite is, you know, high enough to where you could see over the top of it on six foot four, and I, I can see over 80% of the trees out here in West Texas, it seems like, you know, we're, we don't really have uh, big cottonwood trees to, to throw a massive amount of shade. And so we, we looked at what the the shade would be from the building at a, at a moment after noon, you know. So we have 70-something feet, 75 feet of shade that the building throws for, for a courtyard. So lining lining the building up was was essential and thinking of the design of of the impact of of having humans living on that land you know what is your footprint going to be and and what would that living occupation look like uh in the desert those are all factors that that you would want to uh address you know for just very basic human comfort we talked a little bit about um, basically your practice of observation, um, that that's really the beginning of how you interact with land. Um, can you give some color or flavor to what that looks like for you on a practical level? I think, first of all, knowing us as people, because we're, I don't carry a cell phone. You know, I'm not in Meta World. I'm in. I'm in. I'm, I'm on planet Earth. I wear flip flops. <laughs> I wear flip flops in the desert. You know, you you have to pay attention. You're going to catch a, a thorn from a, a cactus called a horse crippler that will take out a horse. It'll it'll darn sure ruin your your month. You know, stepping on one of those. And and so we're just conscious people. We're just awake. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that a lot's been lost. Uh, with people moving to the city and and having a government that keeps us so safe, uh, you know, we don't really have a lot of room for air in, in human society. You know, grandmother always laughed that people seem to have a better attitude uh, when they rode horses to town because if you had a bad attitude, the mule would kick you. it seems like the cars don't do that i see lots of angry people driving the car and you know they don't have an ejector seat in them you know when you're angry and driving dangerously and and so i think just being connected to the to the world at large the world around you you know i i camp historically at least two two months a year outside a lot of people you know, may go camping a few times in their life. And so the the eyes of observation, I think, grow with you throughout life. Are there any interesting insights that you've gained recently about, about the landscape um, that you could share with us? Uh, we had a, a plant taxonomist and a biologist come in before and after on the project. And they found some some different rices that were growing, wild rice that was out on one of the contour berms that hadn't been growing 
uh, in that area in a while, and, and that was kind of neat. But far as any any great insight, uh, you know, I, I think that all the good land seems to get covered up with asphalt and big houses and golf courses when maybe they should be building some subdivisions and not so productive land and kind of change how uh, we tax and and settle on lands because now I think we're down to to drier uh, climates for food production and it seems like you know we've put houses over historically um, fit soils uh, for housing instead of food production. So we are seeing some really interesting things in land use like what Marcus is talking about and uh, what what's possible versus what's actually happening is is a real is a real gap that we that we do take notes about all of the time when we're driving through the landscape. Um, there's a lot of land that is, uh, it's just dehydrating faster and faster. You know, we've, it's, it, the nutrient cycle is broken. The water cycle is really the, the bottom end of that is broken. And so we see a lot of that and we know that that can be uh, fixed. We're big believers that we're in the Anthropocene epic right now. And so it's, it's a possibility for us to be able to, harness uh, bulldozers and topcon systems and be able to go in and put berms and swales and earthworks in and make mm-hmm. a huge change in, in uh, putting in back some infrastructure that would really benefit. What we've really seen is a we've seen drought, fire, and flood over and over and over again out in the desert southwest. And it's a one, two, three punch. So we get the dry years. So we get a dieback in vegetation. Then we have a fire that goes through and burns uh, all of the existing vegetation, including whatever shrubs and trees that we have. It creates uh, soils that are capped and that are actually repelling water. And then after that, we get our hard rain events because our rain cycles are very different now. And that flooding occurs as a direct result of the damage that's already been done by the drought and the fire. Um, So... So those are the large, some of the large scale land observations that we see in our, in the areas that we travel through. I mean, I could talk on that for three hours. Uh, you know, the, the forests have been managed the last hundred years plus for, you know, paper pulp essentially and, and timber and there's no understory and it's fairly unhealthy and we've had a lack of fire and I feel that, you know, the, the American grasslands used to look like a mosaic instead of just a big mm. brown or green swath according to what time of year you're looking at it on, on Google. We don't have the American herd. You know, the the last American herd that we have, we're selling off at uh, $80 plus a head deficit to, to Mexico, which is the uh, horses that we have out in the American West that are loose, you know, and and we don't have the 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 co-management or the co-production between landowners due to us being trained as as individualists uh in this continent uh you know to to have an impact you know i i see a lot of guys selling out because they can't afford the feed and and they do it like their grandpa did it instead of looking at how it is over the fence where they have tall grass, where they have different management practices. And so, 
I've seen people stewardship land almost as like a lifestyle, you know, like the drive-by rancher, you know. <laughs> they drive by. Yeah, they got water. Yeah, they drive by, drop a bale of hay. You know, I've I've worked on properties where the 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 place has been leased out to the neighbor for 20 years, you know, and they didn't know that the well was right there around the corner because the guy had never been, you know, 25 yards off of the road out of his truck. Mm, yeah. New water well. Had no idea that there was an old windmill right there. And it's to me, it's almost comical to to see what what we have and what we don't have. You know, we need to be the beaver. I think that we need to be uh, implementing diesel fuel and doing some some berms and swales and and upland water water management to to help mitigate these flood events that are just compounding uh you know the the cities everybody wants a best management practice that's just a template everybody's kind of afraid to think out of the box because of given these changes in the climate that are happening and the changes in the weather patterns you just kind of hinted at the idea that, you know, people need to engage more or be more place-based and think about it in in more depth. But are there are there big trends that you see that, that could help people manage these lands better? I'm going to just comment uh, on the first part of that, that I, I'm, I'm still out. The jury's out on climate change. You know, nobody knows what it's changed to. It's climate chaos. Amen to that. You know, I, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, 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 don't, I don't see the, the climate change. I see it dry and then I see a flood. I, I definitely can recognize some, some, a warming trend. But I, I, I view it as climate chaos. And as far as management tools, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hand that one to Catherine because she's real big on, uh, on adaptive management. We do it in business, but we refuse to do it ecologically. And it's horrendous. You know, we're stuck in this uh, Victorian uh, sense of, of what wild space looks like and, and is in our interpretation of that. So my, uh, my approach and the thing that I've seen that's of hope in these, in these areas is the uh, adaptive management. And so I've been uh, fortunate to uh, be educated through the Holistic Management International as an associate certified educator, and I'm active in our farm and ranch com- ranching communities here with uh, folks that are adopting adaptive management practices. And some of these things are things you're already familiar with. You know, it's the uh, Alan Savory approach. If you look it up on TED Talks, he's got a wonderful TED Talk on uh, uh, using the uh, mimic biomimicry in action, right, is using these uh, herds of meat animals on the ground in uh planned grazing that uh, benefits the soil microbiology, the hydrology, and the uh, native vegetation, all while being able to make a living for, a happy living for the farm and ranch operation that is implementing these items. It's been used in in arid countries throughout the world, uh, including uh, uh, Africa and Australia. Uh, so this is something that we've seen be successful here in West Texas and New Mexico and Colorado. Uh, I know that there's practitioners on the East Coast as well. Uh, it's an international um, one of probably several international 
uh, education and uh, regenerative agriculture movements out there, practices. Right. And I think for me, the kind of the sexiest part about um, uh, adaptive management or holistic land management using um, ruminants, animals that um, have, you know, hooves, um, is basically that the practice is mimicking the way that those same types of animals, obviously they're more domesticated now than they were, how they would have acted in the wild had there been a predator kind of hunting their herd, right? So like herd animals squished together because if they're too loose on the landscape, right? Like the predators are, it's easier to find them and, and have them. So mimicking the way that the wild works in a domesticated fashion to regenerate the ecology of various different places, specifically arid environments that, you know, that we need to look at water management, um, that that for me was what drew me to Judy's book, and subsequently, you know, finding you guys. And it it feels like the the one of the largest unsung heroes, but certainly is a humongously fast moving movement globally. So it's exciting that you have been doing it for such a long time, and that you're um, in the education space because I think that that's the fastest way to get the word out. It's what I have to offer at this point in my life, too, because I, I am a new grandmother, and uh, we've been out in the desert, and uh, and that that is a harsh environment. I do believe that it can be done. I've seen different projects that have been successful. Uh, it's it's very uh, demanding and, and uh, rigorous uh, place to practice in, and I'm actually looking forward in being in an area that has... Uh, more water resources and being able to apply. I've never seen an environment now that the lessons that I've learned in observation on the water cycles in the desert hasn't benefited the new place that I'm at, even if it has more visible water resources. If you have healthy soils, you don't have a water problem. It's exactly right. We, we, we just need to learn how to take care of the soil that we stand on and be better stewards. If we have a good, healthy microbiotic relationship within our soils it's good you know it's not just herd management it's uh flirt management you know historically every picture that you look at uh from safari has the little cowbird on the hippo butt you know they got the little cowbird on the buffalo butt the little cowbird on the bison butt the little cowbird is out there the little cowbird it has a digestive tract that is very conducive to the probiotics of a, of a bovine ungulate across the board. That they, they, they go out there and they kick apart the dung and they eat the parasites and the maggots out there that give ill will towards the uh, larger mammals. And those little birds in turn give back really nice probiotics to those, to those larger cattle and, and bison, and, and we can mimic that with cows and, and chickens here in, in our own yard. And we just need to look at, at the cycle of what was and, and what works and just go, go with that. One of the things that you mentioned, Catherine, is that a part of your practice, and excuse me if I'm butchering how you, how you see it, um, is, is related to seasons learning and uh, practice of celebration related to that. Can you speak to that idea? The best way to encourage each other in changing our practices and to actually be adaptive and, 
and work to is to cooperate and work together. So there's a there's a strength that we gather from each other when we're when we're adapting very quickly. We need to be able to talk to each other in our areas and hear what's working and what's not working. And and these are things that that uh, help us to be successful in our adaptive management. And it's a it's a celebration of success. So there's a need to come together to break bread together. You know, one of the last altars that we have in our life is to be able to spread a table with good food from our good place and to be able to sit around it with gratitude in our hearts and to be able to say what we're thankful for and be able to have that kind of of culture and, and co-creative environment so that we've, we're safe to sit down and, you know, to to honor the, the divine creator of, of all, you know. So there's there's some uh, there's certainly a there's certainly a required uh, I say required there's a there's a option to be connected on that level so that you have a successful feeling of network and and uh, I don't know what do you call it when you're helping each other out you know you're you're uh, holding each other up you're I think it's gratis it's just by grace mm-hmm. when uh, you're there to to share that experience with each other, we're, we're missing it. You know, everybody's in, plugged in to, to meta world screen reality. World. You know, we call it screen world a lot of you know, times. One of the most funny things, uh, you know, that we heard these people behind us talking about uh, taking in the harvest and putting out manure. And at the time, I, I needed a manure spreader. My friend's manure spreader, the, the cable was down. We were rebuilding it. And I, I wanted to borrow their spreader. And they were like, playing it on Farmville and we just cracked up laughing, you know, that they were cyber farmers. <laughs> oh, that's pretty funny. We were in line <laughs> at the grocery store and we were all excited because we thought they were farmers. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> a farmer being 0.1% of the population, you know, I, I didn't realize that, you know, we had other guys right here in the neighborhood I hadn't met, you know, and, they had a spreader that I that I really could use that week. <laughs> so, if, so I, I do believe that you know celebrating our uh, that is celebration to us. So so being involved and there's something so beautiful. I hope you've had a chance to really plunge into your local food scene. We really see local food as kind of the fulcrum of moving this consciousness into our communities because this local food movement really offers good nutrition to our youngsters and our elders and our nursing mamas and and it real that helps by itself with education and consciousness um the people that are producing those foods in our communities are looking long term at their hydrology and their effect on their land and they're looking for ways to make that experience you know richer and fuller and and more prosperous in all ways. And they're, they're really good people in our communities that are uh, providing us with the food and have food for trade. We do a lot of, a lot of the work that I do. I did a, this morning, I did a reference letter for uh, our adoptive farms, Enzenberg farm for, they're going for a young farmer's grant. And, you know, I've watched their, uh, set up their booth for them before at the farmer's market. And I think every farm should have an auxiliary <laughs> of, of volunteers to step in and help with 
picking and packing and watching the pigs and setting up the farmer's market table. And I hope you have one in your community that you feel like you've already a part of. And, and then having those farm to table dinners where we, you know, resource foods from our local food uh, shed and, and celebrate that way. I, I just, I think that's, that's how we like to live. You know, local music, it's great to listen to electronic music. We have access to music from all over the world. I love world music. I love when it when we make our own music. That's that's a really rich experience too. That's my orientation right now, which is that the health of the soils is and has to be completely paralleled to the health of kind of our spiritual psyches as a community, as a people. And our gut. Just to yeah. get Get, get get back to the dung beetle aspect. Yeah, we've, we've had a lot of uh, parallels. Uh, obviously, you've probably read about a lot of them, but there's a lot of parallels between the microbiology in the soil and the microbiology in our our own little biome, you know, in our in our gut. And uh, speaking of the dung beetle, <laughs> uh, Marcus and I were uh, talking about uh, biomimicry and. Uh, systems that we'd observed out in nature and one of the funny experiences I had in the desert we're off grid in the middle of the Chihuahuan desert you were eight miles off of a black road and let me cut her off <laughs> right there because w- what it was it was it was bachelor camp it was the dean's home for unwed brothers you know oh boy. <laughs> it was where I could take my sleeping bag and go camping and hang out with the old Vietnam vets way out in the desert and Catherine was fascinated of how you could navigate 38 miles of dirt road without cell phone reception, you know, (laughs) oh, it's okay, honey, I'm just following the tire tracks. And, you know, after 20, 20 miles of going down the dirt road, I told her, you know, this is where you should get worried because there's no tire tracks this direction because we were going after a, a rain event. She thought it was really neat to be way far out in the bush and these guys had no running water and water's precious and they're not gonna install a flush toilet they had a very elegant um polished rock out on the a beautiful point that overlooks eight um mountain ranges going back into the uh horizon going towards mexico and and catherine really loved this um horizon that was there and and i'll let you uh hear her spin about the bathroom i think there was some context needed because this is the uh, most remote homestead in the lower 48 according to the local sheriff (laughs) so i'm out there of course looking for a place to uh to go do my number two business and and i and they kept telling me to go out to this place and I walked right by it four or five times and I said you guys you know I don't see anything out there I'm looking for an outhouse or a hole or a or something and they said no it's that polished rock out there and I'm like and it's right you know it's kind of it's like uh, the landform is down a little bit lower so nobody can see you from the cabin or anything but you know so I went out there and I saw it and and I I couldn't believe that was where I was supposed to just go <laughs> dump my <laughs> dirt <laughs> right where you know, out and that we walked by that and everything, and it was so clean. So basically, uh, I went ahead and tried it out, and it was the dung beetles that came. 
Ah. Came almost immediately after I had pooped. Like this was their favorite dung gathering spot. We had them trained. <laughs> They're a bunch of trained dung beetles in the desert, and they <laughs> they had that poop knocked out into balls and rolled off in minutes. I mean, in minutes, it was amazing. In like ten minutes, they had my poop balled up and rolled off. Wow. (laughs) That's a children's book if I've ever heard one. (laughs) (laughs) I was just blown away, you know, and, and I, I, since then we've been big, I've been a big fan of dung beetles and so has Marcus. And, you know, you talk about biomimicry. I would, I would say that right now we're looking at the dung beetle who moves, who moves dung 250 times its own body weight in a night. Wow. So if you transpose that to to like me and my daily weight or Marcus and his weight, it's the equivalent of three dump trucks. 50,000 pounds. It's 50,000 pounds a day. Moves 50,000 pounds of nutrient cycling a day. Now that's what I want to live up to. 50,000 pounds of nutrient cycling a day. And then they, and then I think of Marcus and I, some of the dung beetles, there's rollers, tunnelers, and there's uh, dwellers. And the rollers are the ones we had in the desert. There's also tunnelers that dig holes. There's uh, dwellers that actually live in dung heaps, you know. And our rollers, sometimes the rollers work, the male and the female dung beetles work together to roll the ball. And that's what Marcus and I do. We work together to roll the ball. We stash the ball. The ball is prepared for future generations of dung beetles to be able to explode out of it at a future unnamed time in the desert, okay? So we're literally uh, co-creating uh, an environment that is will be promised success for future generations. Uh, and we're, we're, we're always trying to, to hit that benchmark that the dung beetles set. And it's one of the only uh, non-animal... Uh, forms that navigates besides humans humans do it that navigates by the milky way it seems like the dung beetle is a master sensei in the desert um, and can teach us a lot about how to learn how to live there what do you mean when you say sensei sensei ah so in biomimicry often what we do is we look at one organism and take away one lesson but Every organism has a thousand stories to tell, and some organisms tend to just tell better stories. And so in the desert, the dung beetle has quite a few things to teach us um, if you, just as Catherine was explaining, if you look deeply at it, if you learn from it, if you're surprised by it, you can take away not just one lesson, but many around how to live, how to engage, and especially if it's if it's related to a specific place like the desert. And so, why is it a roller versus a dweller where you live? What what are the conditions that cause that? Maybe there's insights there. And so that's just um, you know deep uh, looking more deeply at an organism to learn more from it. One of the things that I was also surprised about when I started learning about the soil food web. Is and it's really well explained in Judith's book, uh, her water book, was about a water in plain sight, is how water is needed on a hydroscopic level 
for the microbiology to work. And, and Marcus had always observed what we called these nutrient-dense fogs, which occur out in the desert. You know, we have these, you know, it's a very arid environment and your skin becomes very sensitive to when there's more moisture in the air when it's more humid. And we would notice changes in the vegetation around us when we'd have these little fog events, which were really our moisture events. And they were moist enough to allow the microbiology to kick up and also to allow for the exchange of gases. And I had no idea. I think uh, Judith does a really good job of explaining the nature of the exchange of the gases on a on a microbiotic level, Mr. Biologist, I thought you'd like that, Tim, because it's pretty amazing if you get a chance. It's in, I think it's in the chapter we're in, in Do in the Desert. Yeah. One of my favorite things uh, when I was in Tucson was when you did get a high humidity or, or you'd go up to a creosote bush and you'd breathe on it with your breath and then it would release this scent. Um, and that was just amazing to me that that change in humidity would cause such a rapid um, change in the physiology of the plant. And um, so the desert just totally changes and transforms with moisture. And it's so sensitive to that uh, because, of course, it's it's what's critical. It's what you need to be able to, to have to survive there. Yeah, I, I read one time in a book that 70 to 90% of what a plant needs can come out of the air if you have enough humic acid and soil microbe and biology in place. In the soil, it can all come out of the air. And I was just totally floored with that statement. And I read it in uh, Rodale's book of composting. And me and Catherine have constantly seen where you have good soil management, you have good plants, and and those are the neat places to to be in, and the wildlife there seems to be a lot thicker, and, and we need to bring those those things back. We can. We, we can, can do it. We've seen it. We've been part of those. We've done that. We've done that out there, and it works, and it, it just, just this whole thing of, of of uh, co-creating, of cooperating, of changing consciousness, of celebrating culture. You know, we really just have to spread and link up. This is why we agreed to do the this uh, life-centered biomimicry podcast is to do a little uh, plan our throw our spore out there, do a little cross-pollination uh, with you guys. We've been I, we've been really uh, influenced by some great thinkers out there on the East Coast. You know. Uh, there's a, a group that wrote that book, uh, Leading, in, Leading in the Emerging Future. Are you familiar with that? No. It's got a great uh, breakdown. I'll put it in our notes to you at the end, but it's got a great analysis and breakdown about what adaptive management means and what the big, uh, what the, what pre, pre, like what are the big changes that we are going, are required to make to be able to live a successful life in these changing times um, as corporations, as businesses, as groups of, you know, spiritual believers, as groups of land managers, as, you know, communities, individuals. I mean, there's a lot of uh, really great work that's come out now about how to do this, you know, not just what's broken, but what's required to move forward in a positive way to have a really fantastic change uh, happen very quickly. We've taken a, uh some 
properties, put in the berms and swales on contour, take in the windmill that is just pumping water. A lot of the time, if you don't turn them off, they just pump the water on the ground. So we set up a bell siphon inside of this water tank to trigger a water event that displaced, you know, 10,000 gallons of water out of the tank onto the ground through a three-inch valve. And it and it put water out on contour for about half a mile to three quarters of a mile, not very wide, it's about a foot wide, uh, out on the ground. And we got all kind of different plants that came up. We put a fence around it to where the cows had to stay out of it, and only the birds could get in there. We had turkey that came back. The landowner was really uh, excited because he had a. People coming in to hunt turkey a couple times a year. Uh, their family really enjoyed seeing those turkey come back. And it was really easy for us to just mimic a, a pulse water event where you had a wet, dry, wet, dry event. We had grasses through there super thick. The water soaked in. It helped get all the plants established. There's adaptive practices that, that we can do to to take care of the, the water that we already have pumped up, to put it out, to, to mimic what, what nature does for us as far as those uh, pulse water events, dry, wet, uh, like a spring event that makes those uh, plants come up where other times of the year you wouldn't really see those types of plants up and, and in bloom. And, and I think that we just need to be uh, open source. We really love the the open source movement and and seeing people come together uh, through festivals or through open source uh, type events, either you know on the internet or. What are some festivals that you guys have been to? Or I do have a question on our thing, which is: uh, Is there media book or a documentary right now that has you really excited? But I, I'm going to include in that festivals. Uh, me and Catherine really have been drawn to this Eco Nest book. It's a designing, designing and building a light straw house, and it's by uh, Paula Baker and and Laporte and Robert Laporte, and they uh, actually have just moved out of the the area that we're looking at moving to. Uh, we were kind of sad to find that out. But they've they've moved to Oregon. And they're doing a light straw with timber frame construction. We're kind of inspired for, for a new home building, a shop. If I'm going to move, I've told Catherine I have a nice shop and barn space here. And I'm wanting a, a new uh, studio to work in. One of the things that we came to understand in the desert is that it's important. It's, it's good when we have moisture and it comes in a lot of different ways and what we found is there's almost a prejudice that if you have a pond and it's not full year around that it's not valuable and that couldn't be further from the truth so when he was talking about using these pulse irrigation systems off of a windmill he was talking about a biomimicry that we saw happen on a regular basis out in the desert where there's a flush of water and uh, increased 
resource of the water and then there's a plume of activity that happens with that and then that goes away and it's part of a cycle that goes back and forth so it doesn't have to stay dry all the time and it doesn't have to stay wet all the time for that the real value is in the shift between the two states Mm -hmm. we're missing over six thousand playa lakes in west texas in west texas that was a historical flyway for, for migratory birds and still is. And those have been historically drained and, and filled in. And, and we plant cotton over them and we cuss because those parts of the field still gather water. And uh, I like to, to try to mimic that. And that was one of our little projects that we did where I was trying to, to mimic that missing uh, cycle that, that we used to have out here in West Texas on a lot of these ranches where it supported uh, grasses and wildlife and, and we liked uh, putting that in and seeing that act as a, as a nuclear uh, for the biological wealth to spread from. So on a large landscape uh, view and scale of looking at these, these uh, environments, we're looking at what's missing we're observing what's not just what's there, but what's missing from from that nutrient cycling. And we're looking at how to shift it from static into chaotic, into uh, being able to uh, change states into mosaics instead of into a static, from a static picture into a mosaic and moving uh, system. So that's it on a very basic uh, observation and, and uh uh, scale of how we look at these larger landscapes. I had a quick question before we moved on to the questions about what you guys were just talking about, which is, do you see the work that you're doing as like, kind of like, um, I don't know what those medical devices are, but the ones that you put on people when they're not breathing, like a, like a kickstart or a jumpstart to rebuild water and nutrient in, in soils and it basically to jumpstart the regeneration of these landscapes? Or are you seeing these projects that you're involved with more as like long-term integration into your aspect of community where you are? It can happen very quickly. You're very intuitive to ask that question. We, as when Marcus said, we're the beavers on the land, these were involved in a lot of farm starts and ranch starts and, and rollouts of a program that the first few brush strokes that you make on the land can make a huge difference for generations to come. One of the big uh, things, one of the big practices that we've uh, seen employed that help is when people use a combination of practices that they get installed, uh, say they, they install some precision earthworks, they get their roads and fencing sorted out, and uh, their water cycle, at least water water points set up for their animals. When they start moving those animals at the end there on a continual basis, they're, they've just been jump-started into this, this whole new paradigm of prosperity and success and good nutrient cycling on that piece of land. So it is very much like a kickstart. Uh, for each of you, when do you feel most connected to the world? Gardening, I think gardening or uh, looking through a microscope, oddly enough, because it's just a huge universe when you when you look through a microscope onto a slide. Mm-hmm. Gives that wonderful sense of scale. 
Yeah, I think it gives a beautiful sense of scale and a beautiful sense of populace of just how how minute we are and it it brings up how much of our own personal biota is is really that small how we're just a whole bunch of interconnected little cells that work together and I I really think that that's when I'm get a sense of scale I think uh when you're outside maybe looking at a meteor shower would be another time to mm-hmm. really get a sense of of that as you picked mine, that was mine. I was I was going to say for most connection, it's it's being outside early in the morning during fairy time. Things are wet, dews come down. Being out uh, deep in the night when the full moon is up, just that that time when the world shifts and it looks you know it's familiar but it's different too and feels very clean and quiet and pregnant to me at those times. And I feel really connected to all that I don't know and all that is still a mystery. I'm curious. One of the things that both of you just made me think think of is in your day, in your daily life, um, do you have like an overriding to-do list or checklist when you wake up or, or how do you structure your days um, in terms of getting things done or 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 being in sync with the seasons um, do you have do you have a, a daily sort of practice or philosophy yes uh we have a uh vision board we have a uh, whiteboard uh we every morning we wake up and we are grateful and we have our a very ritualistic first cup of coffee and we create our day that day that morning um, before we get started we co-create our day or night they're fairly uh, biorhythmic that's true I don't uh, necessarily sleep uh, set given time I think it kind of cycles through the month with the with the moon with the moon so a lot of we are very biorhythmic so if we we have to kind of feel that spirit and energy to tackle a certain uh, project and uh, we feel very uh, uh, led by our physical and psychic biorhythms about our waking and sleeping time. We have a lot of different calendars, but no clocks. Um, we hmm. uh, we have made some choices too in our practice to uh, uh, tame screen world, so to speak. We may be the only people you know that don't have cell phones. Uh, that practice grew out of being deep in West Texas where they don't work. <laughs> so we got used to not using them. And so, uh, so we just, we've, we've been running a business and everything without a cell phone and we use Wi-Fi, of course, that's what we're on right now. Uh, we prefer face-to-face communications and you both have been lovely, uh, on the, the, uh, venue that we're using right now to, to be able to connect. Uh, we take a lot of baths and believe in soaking in hot springs as a oh, yes instead of quick showers. Um, we believe in uh, uh, you know kind of opting out of some of the I don't know the things that that make the day crazy. We like to we cook together. We like to cook here at home. We don't like to have a lot of mediated food, um, and we we try to try to keep things simple. 
I think one of the challenges that so many people have today is information overload from their screens, from their devices, from their Facebook pages and all these things. Um, given that you guys are so separate from that, and I loved your story about Farmville, it just cracks me up, but how, if you had advice for people to take time out, is there one or two of your rituals that you think would really help somebody who's suffering from just information overload? Grow your own food. Grow some of your own food. Mm-hmm. I think uh, growing your own food and uh, paying attention to your subconscious mind of how much time you spend on on Facebook instead of moving you and your uh, life forward. Yeah, I bet if people tracked it, they'd be very surprised how much time we spend on Facebook versus uh, things that we might actually want to do. Okay, what do you think right now today is one of the most harmful things that we're doing, but that most people don't recognize? I'm going to jump right on that one. Bare ground. We have to cover Mm -hmm. bare ground. We have to cover bare ground wherever we see it with whatever we have. I think uh, I would answer that one with, I I think, the GMO foods right now. You know, we have such great intent of uh, wanting to help feed uh, the masses uh, with uh, a low industrial input. And I I feel that that we're losing a lot of adapted land race seeds that, that we should... Growing on a local level, uh, I, I met a beautiful man in northern New Mexico that did a great study on how it takes a couple of generations for those seeds to, to reacclimate, and we're, we're moving all these plants around with great speed when I feel that we should be growing what, what has grown there historically and, and should be eating some of that uh, instead of what what the new plant is that just came out. I, I looked, a friend of mine brought over a plant catalog, and they, they had a tomato that puts out potatoes on the bottom. And <laughs> I thought, I, yeah, you know, yeah we're... What, a, what a freaky thing, man. I don't think I'd want to eat either, either tomato or potato off of that plant. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think it's interesting um, that the GMO, in a lot of ways, it, it's actually, even though it helps us create new things, as a result, we're losing more than we're gaining yeah. in terms of diversity and knowledge of how to raise food on land, the, on the land that we have. The second one I have for that would be a neonicotinoid uh pesticides that we're putting on the seed that changes the RNA of the plant, which is essentially its own DNA, to exhibit uh, poison through the life of that plant. And, and we've been marketing a lot of, of not just perennial, not just uh, annual plants like that, but perennial plants, landscaping plants that are, that our children are going to be living with, that, that will constantly be be taking cogs out of the the soil food chain uh, food web that I I think we need. They've had a great impact on bees 
Uh, other countries have have outlawed those pesticides and that 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 means of of growing food and have had a, a great impact on the on the insectary there. And that's one of the ways that that we as land stewards and and as observation uh, people go in and and can tell if uh, land's doing good or not. Is you know does it have bugs on it? You know it's a basic level of the food chain and. I feel that with uh, GMO inputs and and with these uh, uh, neonicotinoid and and pesticides, uh, herbicides that that alter a plant's basic RNA are are going to show over time that that they're non-conducive for our well-being. I I think that's right on. Talking about genetically modified organisms. If you were going to splice in or put in one gene, or it could be a characteristic, not necessarily a gene, from any organism on Earth into people, what would it be and why? It'd be a dung beetle. I mean, he, he, he takes care of his own poop plus 250 times his, his body weight a day. And I think if people uh, were a little more stewarding of of one another through life, uh, we would have a much better civilization. So I think if people were a little more like the uh, the beetles there, we'd get along a little better. I agree with uh, Marcus on that. I think there must have been a reason that the scarab was sacred. That is a dung beetle in the Egyptian culture, and there's a that would be pretty interesting if each each person took care of their own. Uh, took care of, you know, 250 times their body weight of nutrient cycling a day. I, I just can't even imagine what a, what an evolution, revolution that would be uh, here on Mother Earth. Yeah, we would be a, a force for thriving, right, in the world. <laughs> Restoring it away for future generations, kicking everything into shape. I'm a handyman. I, a lot of the time I've always wished for a, a, sh- a third arm complete with a shoulder and elbow out of my forehead. <laughs> so, I, I like that answer I could, like, That's read, good. I could read on the fly I could, <laughs> I could think of lots of times doing trim carpentry yep. really come in handy to carry the glue bottle while I was doing a fit up very, very practical one of our last questions is if you could teleport anywhere for one hour and then back again where would you go? Um, due to this being uh, on the internet, I, I don't want to talk about any civil unrest I may or may not um, want to contribute to in history. Uh, I think is I'd save that one for, for one of those moments. That's interesting. Like you would go back in time and fix something, or I, I don't know. I don't know. It's kind of a kind of an open question there. I mean, it's kind of a fun thought, you know. What if Lincoln hadn't uh, had been assassinated? You know, everybody's, uh, you know, America's most beloved president. What if what if you could uh, stop JFK from being assassinated? What what would the world look like now? Uh, I think uh, maybe I'd want to go back and try to play uh, Superman, be the guy uh, that just happened to be running across the uh, shooter's path there with a big Dutch oven. <laughs> my boy scout uniform troop one 
Is there anywhere online or a place where you would like to direct our audience? Well, we have a pretty extensive LinkedIn uh, profiles that that we use for people that are just looking us up. And if anybody just Googled us, uh, they'll find us on a couple different sites and resources. We, we basically, Marcus, Marcus ignores all that, but I pay attention to it. And, uh, and <laughs> I think the best thing to do is people that come to visit us here, they come to the side door and, and we have a pretty good drop-in policy during the day. You guys would always be welcome here too. Uh, if you're out, out and about in central Texas. Uh, I think, uh, you know, if everybody got into, uh, Elaine Ingham's work on compost tea, we could, uh, work on our own biomimicry on a household level and, and maybe be able to undo uh, some of the toxins that exist in, in our urban environments in our, in our own backyard to be able to eat more food and be able to soak in some of that rain, maybe do some curb cuts, some <laughs> we're listed. Gardens. We're listed in a local phone book uh, under Otmers, and uh, we answer our phone. We're open to opportunity. Well, I like that. I think you're the first people who said, just show up at our door. Our side door, not the front door. Yeah, the side door. Right, the side door. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you guys uh, doing your uh, uh, life-centered uh, biomimicry podcast. I really do. I appreciate I appreciate you guys doing that. I think the feeling's mutual. This has been a really uh, dynamic and wonderful conversation. So I appreciate your taking the time this morning. And that's a wrap on episode 14. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we clearly did. And as always, thank you for listening. Life Centered Podcast can now be found on iTunes. And if you like what you heard, it really does help us out to give us a rating, make a few comments, or share the link with those you think who might enjoy our podcast. 